Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. So welcome, everyone, to another edition of Eating Crow. I'm fortunate to have Matt Sheehan on the program with us today. And Matt has a very cool industrial office for those watching this. I asked if it was a fake background. He said, no, it's real. It was intentional. <laughs> it's real. It's authentic over here, baby. <laughs> I love it. So uh, Matt and I were actually introduced by some other folks. It's, it's the point now where Eating Crow is such a famous podcast that people are recommending guests for our show. It's hit the big time. So uh, Matt's a Penn State grad as well, but his undergrad is a little more interesting where you played college hockey as well. Yeah. So went to uh, what's now Bentley University. It was Bentley College. So everybody's upgrading all over the place. You know, it was a smaller school right outside of Boston, one of the best small business schools in the country, although nobody knows it outside of the New England, which I just want to like wrangle people's necks. I always say I majored in hockey and I, I minored in management and communications. Incredible school, good hockey program. And now as I look, we built a rink since and because we didn't have a rink. We were playing in like the downtown, you know, local not so, we called it the jar. And it was so you can imagine what the rink was like. And now it's beautiful. And then I would never make the team now because there's Canadians and everybody's six four and you know, I'm five six, but not a chance would I be on that team. We'll touch on some of these things here in a minute. I think the one of the, the goals of our episode is to tap into some of your entrepreneurship, your leadership. But let's stay on hockey for a minute. You said something interesting. I look at the colleges we went to, right? The campuses. I was in a four block cinder block cell basically (laughs) for three years. There was no amenities. There was no nothing, right? Yeah. I have my kids are basically out of college now and I look at where they went to school. It's like a country club. Uh I mean it's the facilities are ridiculous. It's a very different experience. I think kids today have a letdown when they leave college. I think many of them do. Same the school my kids are going to here here in North Raleigh. Ravenscroft. It's crazy. It's like, I've never seen anything like it. It's better than that college I went to in many, many, many regards. So I do worry about their expectations in life of it. So. Yeah. Their first apartment needs to have a 12-year-old couch, one <laughs> chair, and some Tupperware that we were willing to part with. That's what, that's what it should be like. And the only furniture they're going to take from our house is whatever they can fit in a car that they bought. Yeah, 100%. My son lives with three international players and I, I love them because they get off the plane with one duffel bag. With all of their belongings, I'm like, that's how it should be. Amazing. So good. Not parents making six trips to drop off. You know, Matching pillow should not be a conversation in college. Ever. <laughs> that's totally right, man. We, we think that like... Listen, man, education comes in a lot of ways. And hockey was a great piece of education for me. I'll, I'll just share a story. We were watching the high school I ended up playing for. My dad went to many, many moons ago. <clears throat> he would take me to watch them a lot. Uh, in hockey has a lot of colorful language. It was me and my younger brother. So we're like uh, eight and four, whatever it is. And my uh, dad turns around behind him and he says, Hey, you got to watch the language. My boys are here. And so it keeps on going on and he turns around and and my dad's a sweet guy, but he's a tough Irish guy from Boston. He said, boys, you got to watch the language. And the last time he turned around, I said, boys, those seats are no longer yours. You need to leave. And they saw a dad get really mad. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not afraid of swear words in our family, but yeah. it was 
you know, it was a little much. So yeah, colorful times in hockey arenas. For sure. Yeah. By the way, I tried that approach and my wife had to grab my belt and pull me back down in the stands and said, you're not at a grade school hockey game. This is college. <laughs> <laughs> you need to deal. And my wife's 10 times more competitive. And I mean, she was, she's rooting for a fight. She's up there going, whoo, whoo. Yeah, she's crazy. So Matt, we'll get into the sports background because I think it has a lot to do with who you are and, and what drives you. I think a lot of analogies are there, but I want to go a couple of places. Maybe other people haven't gone in their podcasts. But first, I want to allow you to kind of talk about Exhale, right? This is where you are today. A lot of things have got you there. The name of the company is interesting. And I want you to describe what's the purpose? What are you doing at Exhale? And let's have some back and forth on, on that. So a little background. I very much believe in my life to take time off in between jobs. It's hard to do financially. You got to be really smart. But I've tried to do it a couple of times in my life. One of the times was after I had helped build the Redbox business up from like 4 million to 2 billion in six years. Mm-hmm. My buddy was the CEO. I knew that wasn't a role I was going to get. And I said, let me, let me step out, cash out a bit, and then uh, take some time. And that was before I went to run Primo. But I took about a, a year off in between. And I remember one day my wife looked at me and said, did you see the downstairs bathroom faucet? And my response, I'll try not to swear, but you can imagine what I said was, oh, bleep. And what happened the next day was exactly what I predicted, which is my day was blown up. I was going to have to miss a couple meetings. I was going to have to wait for this five-hour window for a plumber to show up to overcharge. I was just a little bit disgusted by the whole scenario. And I also know that people go through this all the time. That's 10 years ago. And so uh, I started writing this idea, which was more like a handyman subscription. So let's get a guy in a truck and he'll be there on call for you because you're paying into the membership. Uh, I went to run a public turnaround, a publicly traded company after that. So I put this a bit on the back burner. But for 10 years now, I've been writing notes to myself, whether it's on my hand or on a piece of paper or a lot of emails to myself. And I realized that the problem hasn't changed in 10 years. It might have actually gotten worse. And the big gap here is that people, when you're taking care of the largest asset, as I look around my own house, the largest asset we generally have in our home, we don't care for it like we care for other things, right? My car has a maintenance program. It has insurance. I get a checkup for you know my body every year. I go to the dentist a lot, all that stuff. Heck, my iPhone, wherever it is, it, you know, I just hit go and it upgrades the software. Our homes, though, don't do that. Right. And so, but the world of home services is very transactional. It's in and out, it stops per day, but it's not what we need as consumers, as homeowners. What we need is a relationship, not transaction, a relationship with somebody to, who knows our home and who takes care of it. So, Exhale is the, the only partner homeowners need to maintain, clean, repair, and upgrade their home whether it's landscaping or maid service or window cleaning or handyman service or HVAC, it doesn't matter. It's all one point of contact. We assign you a home manager and you call your home manager for anything and everything you need in the home. Reactively, sure, but he or she proactively plans 12 months of service for your home. So on day one of our members, they get a 12-month calendar down to the service, down to the day, as much as we can down to the hour across 12 months across their entire home. And what happens is people get this great relief and I'll get to the name in a minute. And they also realize that their home is about to get managed by an expert because most of us are not. I don't know if you're handy, man, but I am not that handy. My dad gave me a lot of skills, not that one. I get stressed when my home is in shape where I can't do anything about it. Now I 
I text our home manager, Trey, and Trey says, I got it. And that's usually all I have to do. The analogy is about your car, your body, everything else, and the fact that this is your largest asset, right? Your biggest asset. It's, it's the most appreciating asset too, right? For sure. This is an investment in addition to your home. And the more you take care of it, the better the investment, the better the return. So I, I love all the analogies. And exhale is such a brilliant... You described it. That's how I would feel. I'm moderately handy, but I also know the things I don't want to touch. I'm really nervous about touching electrical. For sure. And I don't want to touch plumbing because when those two things go wrong, really bad stuff happens. You know, you think about your homeowner's insurance, that's kind of catastrophic, like catastrophic health insurance, right? And warranties are basically appliance-driven. Even those things are often highly disputed and typically don't happen. You don't get to use it when you need to use it. It's pretty much gone. I always talk about the warranties as this interesting thing where it is an insurance business and they make money. And by the way, there's some good ones out there for sure. sure. The general idea of them, if something goes bad, you're protected. I think that's beautiful. But generally what happens, you use the word disputed. They make money because they take your premium. They don't want to put service against the premium. Not That's all. not what homeowners need. What homeowners need is somebody who, what I always say, I love when you call us for that light bulb. It's all right. It will be in and out really fast, but we know your home. We already know your light bulb because we we have a relationship with you and your home. Very, very different than a warranty business for sure. Yeah. In fact, my wife and I are, are trying to put a, a natural gas fire pit in the backyard. And I will admit, I have a hard time allocating the time during the day to research it line up the contractor, be there when they come do it. And there's multiple parts to it. There's the pit itself. There's natural gas line. There's the installation. I have seven things I need to take care of to get that one project done where in this situation, I make one phone call or one text and there's somebody running with it. I love the idea. So so, so time is the essence. So I, I've told the story a couple of times. I'll tell it really quick. But my dad had this really ugly yellow van and on the back of it was a bumper sticker and it said the clock of life is wound but once. It's a beginning of a, of a poem. It's been a big, big thing for me ever since we were kids. Just manage your time well. And if I, I hear people like you and others who are successful, who have gifts to give to the world, if you will, sure. spending time on that fire pit when there are experts likely better than you at it, and it's not to take any time. And that combination is something, frankly, I'm very proud we're doing for our members. So how's business been? It's recently launched. Where's the business today? Yeah, so we uh, launched our pilot with uh, consumers in February of this year. We planned it for about six months. But again, this thing is not a new idea. Right. It's been in my head for a long time. So designed it for about six months, launched it in February. We had uh, just under a 15 house pilot. And it's gone extremely well. You know, like all startups, we learned a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's way to say we bumped our heads a few times here and there. Yeah, but that's usually the back end stuff, how we're communicating, how we're scheduling, things like that. To the consumers, what we call members, because it is a membership, um, it's been very good. So I'm a, I'm a big NPS fan, Net Promoter Score. Uh, I've used it at Redbox, used it at Primo. I think for most service or CPG product companies, it's the right sort of almost future indicator of how good your business is going to be. Not only current customer satisfaction, but future. Average company in the country, last time I looked, was five. 100-point scale, five. Not good. And that's been going on for a long, long time. Home services, we're just doing a national study now. I almost guarantee it's under 25. We just scored a 75. Two surveys, scored a 75. And that makes me feel very proud. And that was the key for me. 
unit economics and all that have to play out. That's in the right direction. But at the end of the day, if we couldn't get that kind of a score, which represents our ability to help people exhale, then I would have shut the pilot down, frankly. It's going really, really well. And now we're starting to turn up the, just in the last couple of weeks, we said the pilot has proven what it needs. Now it's time to go grow. So now we're off and running and we think we're going to serve in the near future, you know, hundreds of homes here in the Triangle area. So Matt, a couple of things come to mind and having built a couple of companies, I'm trying to figure out how you don't chase the, the shiny object here, right? But one of the things that really attracts me to the business uh, among many is the data you are going to gather in the next five years mm-hmm. around home ownership. So I'm thinking about how A, you license the data as well as the service to condominium communities, homeowner communities as country clubs, right? As a perk when you join that club and you build in this community, this comes as a service because you know the data. You can say to these organizations, here's the number one thing requested in our service. Here's how much it costs. Here's how the vendors work. I mean, the data is astounding that you're going to put together here. I don't believe anybody will have such an intimate knowledge of homes in general. One thing I do want to say about data, though, I have a very strong perspective is it won't be individualized. We have to be very careful about that because it's going to be We're in people's homes. We won't succeed if we're in homes and we're selling data. So we need to figure out how to utilize that data in a good way. I absolutely believe in the data. At the end of the day, though, this is a service business. We'll have a lot of data. We're only going to have a lot of data if we kick butt as it relates to service and people are happy. So I always just help everybody because plenty of VCs have called and it's all about the data. And I got that, but it's not going to be the business I want to build. And this business is all about that NPS score. But yes, we will know homes really well, just from an informal and also a formal data perspective. Absolutely for sure. Yeah. And I think that's why I pinned the five-year mark, right? Because to me, it's, you've got to grind, support your customers. But in five years, when you look back and you de-identify the data, then there's some really information you can start to pull out about how you drive your relationship with vendors and where else you can sell it. Absolutely right. How we can take care of customers. We'll learn. We're under 15 customers. We'll be much more than that even in three weeks, just given sort of small open of the pipe and a lot of calls came in. But we're already making changes every single day based on what we're learning. And that's been super critical, including what customers will become great members. Sure. So we're starting to get good at you know having a consult and a home review. We usually spend about seven hours with a homeowner before we ever start a membership. So it's an investment from our perspective. And what we're starting to learn is those folks who are, what I say, they're going to be good people, unpretentious people, because I grew up in a blue collar way. I don't, we don't need any of those people in our company. So they got to be good people. They have to value their time and they have to value great service. You find me that house size irrelevant and all that, then I think we can provide a really great service. If you don't check all those boxes, probably not going to be a great fit for us. Understood. That's great. When you when you think about scaling the organization, are there plans to take it nationally, of course? Once you Is it a market-by-market market assessment? How do you plan on scaling it? I think it's going to be DMA by DMA. So okay. we're starting only starting to think about that now because at the end of the day, we still have a lot of work to do here on the Triangle. But if you look across the country, there are some great DMAs like this one that will work. I think there's plenty of DMAs in every every all 50 states. By the way, this is also homes exist all over the world. And so I don't want to get ahead of myself there, but I love to help build that mousetrap, tweak it until we know it works, and then scale it. I love that scale part of it. But you know, one thing, you know, one one foot in front of the other. But homes are everywhere. 
Um, this problem exists everywhere. And if we can give thousands to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people time back, I'll be one proud dude. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, getting signed up for the service as well, because I do take satisfaction in something you said earlier, watching an expert do something versus how I would have done it. When you watch a really skilled trade do their job in anything, right? whether it's landscaping, masonry, carpentry, anything, you just watch somebody who's really, really good at painting. I mean, watching someone who's really skilled paint your house. It's amazing. I painted enough walls, man. And yeah. my lines just don't straight and they come in and it's like they, a robot did it. It's amazing, how, but it's an art for sure. I, I love it too. It's tools and it's just great efficiencies. So let's shift gears for a minute. I think, you know, understanding where you are with Exhale and excited to see another triangle-based business kind of get its roots here and then grow across the country. So we'll be watching that. When you think about when you started the company and you were gathering ideas, you were trying to solve a problem. When you look back at your career, you've had a lot of success in very different industries. When you get out of bed every morning, Matt, what's the biggest thing that motivates you to tackle the day? It's two things. It comes back from my childhood. And the one is growth uh, in general. It's not because I'm 5'6". I'm not going to grow anymore. So that's, that was clear. Uh, right. I knew I wasn't going to go the pros. You're many. compensating. <laughs> growth is one. I just get... Uh, it's almost addicted. It's a, such a visceral feeling when you're growing and it's fast and you're getting those those notes from your members or customers says, you guys are doing a great job. Thank you. That it really lights me up at a very core level. So I love growth. I love service. The other thing, you know, I'd say is when I was a kid, I had this moment where I started to distaste being average. Hmm. A whole bunch of me that was born average. Now I, I did not have average parents. They were amazing. We were middle-class. So that was average, but there's some sort of bug in me a little bit about proving that I can to myself that I can do uh, potentially more than I was given. And I have some skills for sure, but I just, there's a burning thing in me to provide something to the world that is really great and excellent. It's not necessarily about me, but it's really about go build, go build excellence. And that drives me every day, not to mention my risk profile is buried, right? So Every time I sign up for business, if everybody tells me it's a good job, that it's a smart thing to do, I get very worried because I know if you think about the world in four corners, most people go to the three corners where everybody says, yeah, that's a good idea. I always like to slink into the corner that everybody says, are you crazy? Right. And I heard that before Redbox. I heard it before Primo. I heard it before another startup I did. This one has a little bit of the crazy too, because it is big. It's hairy. It's yeah. very nuanced for every home. And a lot of folks say, you can't scale that business. And I say, watch. Now, sure. of course, the challenge is ahead. So I think the growth and just doing something excellent, and that will require a lot of work for me to do at the time. When you build a team, you know this is, I think, something other leaders have struggled with, right? You're wired a certain way. Hmm. I'm wired a certain way. One of the challenges I faced was trying to find people to join my team. And I had to realize I, they didn't have to be wired the way I was wired. There had to be some fundamental core common things that we all believed in. But surrounding myself with people who complemented my weaknesses was important. I had to know them first, right? And sometimes it took some very intelligent partners, investors, and board members to point out the fact that, hey, Pete, you sucked over here. Go address that. Yeah. But when you're thinking about the team you're trying to put together, how do you convey, which is your purpose, your mission, which, by the way, is fundamental to the success of any company? I mean, someone who's driving the ship has to have a burning desire to accomplish something. So for you, growth and excellence, I'll tell you, that's what investors want to hear. You're obviously one of the largest investors in this program. 
But when you're sitting in front of a, a CRO or even a customer service rep who's looking to join your company, the person that's going to go in and sit with these customers, what I'm thinking of is that person doing that home assessment is the very first impression they will have of your company and how they are treated. I look back, we're in the South, right? Chick-fil-A. There are very few companies that can actually dictate, mandate, and viscerally project a culture. So when you walk in there, people say to you, my pleasure, and they mean it. What's your recruiting process like? How do you attract talent that jives with your feelings? A big, great question. So I'll take this from a couple angles. First is, I very much believe what you said, and I think a lot of folks don't do it, which is you have the first thing you have to do is build a purpose and some values. Mm -hmm. The first thing we did before we had a name was build our purpose and our values. And so the purpose is to turn homes into havens, to create an inspiring place to work, and to serve our community. It's threefold. It's deliver great service, build an awesome culture. And then I do believe we have a responsibility to give back to the community around us. And if you take that trifecta, you do all those well, I think we will be successful and I'll be proud of the business we built. So that's one. That That is so important in recruiting because when I say that, when I see eyes light up, I know there's an interest. When I see people, okay, it's another purpose statement. And that is that thing comes so deep from my heart and my co-founder's heart that if you don't feel and believe that one, then this is this is going to be a four-minute interview. And I've done it before because you just know there. So that's that's one piece. Uh, we have four values and, and we worked hard at this too. So the first one is service excels. Second one is optimism rules. The third one is range matters. And the last one is trust builds. Okay. So I, my questioning is not about how good you are with a hammer because I have some folks to, to tell me if that's clearly, I don't know what I'm doing with a hammer. List. But I walk through that and I, I have some specific questions. And when I walk away, that yes, they believe in service. They're generally optimistic about life in general, they have range. And that's both diversity and our willingness to work with all types of homes and members. And then I have to I have to be able to trust you by the end of the interview. And if I get those, all the other stuff is gonna gonna work itself itself up. The last one I always look at, and this has taken me a long time to find, is a combination of drive and humility. I'm always fast paced. The businesses I join or lead are always have a little bit of a speedometer to them, right? You have to have that drive, that desire to be good, to produce excellence. But without some leveling set of humility in you, then it becomes arrogant and success actually hurts. And so I love that balance. And this certainly came from my parents, which is do what you can to do things great in life, but do not forget about where you came from or the help you have along the way. And so um, I always look for those. And then skills for me are, are lasting. You give me that energy, give me that attitude. I can either help train you um, or my team can make sure you swing a hammer well in this instance. But you give me that and um, we can go a long way. That's astute. Skills are typically 20% of the reasons why someone fails, not 80%. It's the totally last right. part. The range comment was interesting. I have not heard that before. And it might be particular to the business you're driving, but I think it applies to any company, particularly in early stage business. I think it does. You know, we worked hard at this. It's interesting when you say you hard work because my guys work a lot harder than me when they're taking care of a member and they're painting and all that. But some part of some definition of hard work is when you're really trying to understand the soul of a business before the business is even started. Yeah. And so one of them is range. We very much believe in diversity mm-hmm. and a lot of companies have diversity as a, as a value, which I celebrate. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it was another layer of that. It yeah. was not only do we have to be diverse ourselves 
We have to be diverse because we're going to go serve a diverse world. And that is across every mechanism, whether it's race, uh, gender, all that. But it's also range in terms of our homes. Yeah. And I always say the scenario, you can give me seven row homes on the same street, build them the same day, put seven families in, the, in each one of them, come back in a year, they'll all wear and tear differently. Sure. It's not necessarily just about the home. It's about the people in it. Yeah. And so that desire for range and that push on us to make sure we are hiring with range and we are supporting range is and will be a very big deal for us. Well, as you stated, your people who, again, represent Exhale have to treat a customer in a $750,000 home the same way they treat a customer in a $150,000 home. And that is, by the way, that's palpable. You can feel that when they walk into your home and how they treat you and how they talk to you. I know you've been on Don Thompson's podcast and, and Don was one of my first guests when he was starting to get into diversity as his now platform, right? It's his passion. And I asked Don to clarify some thoughts there. And one of the things Don said that was interesting, and, and you've kind of hinted at it, was he said, Pete, when you're recruiting people, it's not that you have to hire a minority or someone of a specific gender, et cetera. He goes, you need to make sure you interview people of a diverse slate, right? So you want to get as diverse of a slate, then pick the best candidate. And in the interview process, that diversity will help you identify things that maybe you hadn't thought of before. For me, diversity has to do with all the things you mentioned, but also I want as many unique thought processes at the table with me. And that's the job of a leader is to pull the best out of that team to make the best decision. It doesn't mean it's your decision, Jones' decisions, Betty decisions, or Bob. It's the best decision for the team. And collectively, we, we could be wrong, but if you've got a collective input, you've typically gone to those boundary conditions and address them and kind of that, that effort really starts to pay off. So yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it. Donald is so smart on this. And the one thing that I really loved about him and you just echoed it is he always said, pick the best candidate. Yep. As much as he's looking for diversity, he wants everybody to succeed for their own right. Let's just make sure we give opportunities to everybody. And I think that's so, so, so critical. So I it was a really intuitive thing for him to say as well. You're a passionate driven guy. I'm going to ask you an interesting question here. What's your biggest pet peeve? What, what's your, what's your biggest hot button or buttons? So yeah, I have a couple. My wife has a lot more about me, by the way, but I won't share those if I won't invite her to the podcast. My list is long as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The thing that gets me a lot is when people are passionate about something, but they have a lot of constraints or rules. Mm-hmm. Meaning there's a lot of, they say, well, I would be really excited about this, but boom, 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 boom. And it's, it's like, no, you, I'm all about negotiating and making sure the table is set for me to be successful. Others, I got that. But sometimes I hear people just the list of rules and regulations that you need to provide for them so that it's a perfect opportunity. And by the way, that's personal and professional. Sure. It takes me back, which is this person's going to be really hard to manage. And they say they're passionate, but passion for me overlooks a lot of that stuff, which is, I love this thing so much. It's not perfect. I'm in, and I'm going to help you along the way. But so some of those constraints may, might be a bad word. That, that, that sort of gets to me sometimes where I usually feel like people aren't really in it. They, right. Their head is in it, but their heart's not in it. That's a little bit of a pet, pet peeve for mine. I, I think I'm now better at recognizing that. I've made some mistakes going down that path with people in the past and 
it just didn't work out well. So self-imposed constraints. That's kind of what I've heard, right? Yeah, I'm passionate, yeah. but I hear all the reasons I can't get that done. Or here's what I need to make that successful. And a little, small list is good. Negotiate well, set yourself. I always say sympathy for yourself. But if that list is super long, I just get all the red flags, which is, oh, wow, that person's going to be super tough to manage. Or that person's not going to be a good friend because you know it's so detailed to manage them and manage the relationship rather than some people say, I love you, man. And, and I'm in, I'm in like, yeah. my, like my buddies would I'm in. And I know we're going to have some rocky times. I know we're going to have some bumpy days, but, but I'm in and, and I think I can help. That's, that's what I, I, I get. You know, it's interesting. I have seen that in the interview process as well. There are people when you get done with the second interview, they're like, I'm in Matt. I love the vision. I know it's going to be hairy, but I'm in, I'm oh, let's go. Versus the next person is going, I'm sorry, what do your dental benefits look like, Matt? Then you know they're not in, right? This is a job for them and they're not in. And by the way, I, I want to have those detailed discussions with anyone. Those are important questions, but it depends on when they come up. It, it depends on when they come up in the questions. You know, first thing I do is, is interview. I try not to give this away too many times, but first thing is, hey, great to meet you. Obviously, the team likes you. I, your, your resume is great. Um, so what questions do you have? Mm-hmm. I don't ask questions. I always ask them to ask me. So on one hand, I'm talking about two sides of my mouth because it's not questions. It's not, hey, I want to know your your profit from last year. I want to know why you choose customers. Those are not constraints. Those are intelligent questions. Sure. Some of my interviews, the best ones, where I never ask a question. I'm answering their questions. We're going back and forth. That's different than constraints, right? 100%. Like I want the people who do the homework and you know they want in because they spent all night last night coming up with questions. Yeah. Great. And then at the end, if they have a few, okay, I love it. I'm in. I just need to make sure this is right for me and my family. Awesome. That's great. But when it's flipped, which is, oh, I don't have any questions, but um, here are the 15 things I need. Dude, it's over. <laughs> Red flag. Run. Run. Now, you know, you mentioned you might have a couple different hot buttons. I have three. My kids know them. Laziness, dishonesty, and I'll use the word unkindness in a strange way, right? So my kids know, I just don't, I don't do well with laziness. If you're not motivated to help yourself and help others, that's really a big, big hot button for me. Dishonesty for sure, right? That, and that gets back to trust, right? So whether it's my kids being honest with me, and, and I would give my wife a lot of credit here. We've been fortunate that I, my kids have been fairly honest with me, right? Through, throughout their lives. If they've effed up, they fessed it, we've gotten through it, we talk about it, we learn from it. It's when they don't that things start to fester. And then the unkindness thing for me, it's an overarching thing, right? And you've described it in a lot of the attributes you said you brought to the table, right? Particularly your parents and how, how wonderful they've been. So when you think about some of the, the hot buttons for you, shift into the more personal side, away from the work side, what are the things that get your, you know, your blood boiling and you think, man, I just can't, for some reason, that really rubs me the wrong way. One, I have three great, awesome kids. So 13, 11, and nine, girl in the middle, two boys on the bookends. And, you, you know, I, I believe Trisha and I are doing a good job of helping them be themselves. Mm-hmm. One thing that gets me, and it happened in our family a couple of weeks ago, is um, one, one of the kids said something about it almost like they were doing something to be popular. It did get in me. And, and I'm not a yeller. Yeah. And and I do probably like you, I have a dad boom and it's usually to help my wife out. If I need it, I can call it out. And that's like standard attention, yep. but I'm not a yeller. But when, when I hear people trying to be what others want them to be, mm-hmm. 
it gets sort of under my skin, not because it hurts me. Sure. It's because I just know what that's going to do for them. And certainly for my kids, I try to help them be very unique. We have some very funny dress code conversations around this house. And I was like, oh, good. Yeah. My, my girl, Riley, you don't like matching socks. That is so awesome, girl. You rock it, Run right? It. Run with it. So that, that is one that I've recognized in the last couple of years, whether it's my kids or family or others, is that when, when you get that sense that folks are doing things for the crowd or for others, I, I get a little worried about their authenticity, their weather vane, and where they're going to go in life, and, and that sort of lack of self-awareness. So that, that, that's one that jumps at me recently because we had an interesting conversation with family last week. And, you know, one of my kids said, I think I got it, Dad. So I'm like, you know, maybe that was a good dad moment. But that's, that's one that gets me. In this day and age when political correctness and not offending people is such a more prominent aspect of our social lives, right? There's a fine line between you know, teaching your children and even yourself, right? even myself, the ability to hold on to my values and my, my views, but respect those of others. Yes. So my wife and I went, were driving back from a wedding in Florida this weekend, and we listened to Matthew McCotney's new book. And my son had read it. My oldest son had read it. said, Dad, you might enjoy this. I did enjoy it. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. He's a very esoteric thinker. He's a deep thinker. And he's experienced things in life that I had no idea that add to the depth. So he was observing a conversation between an Indian chief and one of the other elders. And I won't describe the topic, but that both these people had very different opinions. And Matthew was listening to it. And then he picked a side and said, I agree with so-and-so. The person he agreed with looked at him and said, it is not right or wrong. It is, do you understand? And the other guy said, do you understand? I felt like, you know, I threw my name in the hat here and recognized I missed it. And what they were saying is, we don't care which one of us is right or wrong. We are discussing this with emotion because we want to understand each other. It was a really powerful thing for me to hear, right? Specifically today, if I can jump in, specifically today with so much going on in the world, our ability to just step back and have some empathy is why somebody understands that is different than you. People just tend to need to be right. And, and I understand that. And that val- they need that validation of the decision they made for them and their families. But that is different than my family or your family. And yeah, I'm with you. I think that's great. I'll, I'll, I've heard about the book a couple of times. So I'll have to dig into it. But I, I, think he's, I think he's right. And it's super hard to do. It is very hard to do. I'm sure I screw this one up all the time because I am passionate. I do have some strong values. I try to remember like the little chain, which yank yourself back. because like, whoa, 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 I'm about to get on that horse. I, I need to understand or I don't agree. And here's why. Yeah. And I've got some, some really you know, intelligent, really close friends who you know, we have different opinions on some important things in our lives. And what wonderful dialogue we're able to have with each other at the end where you know, he'll look across me and go, you know what? I really appreciate your thought process behind your opinion. I don't necessarily align with it, but I know you're not just stomping your feet and standing your ground. Now I understand why you feel the way you do and the data you're looking at. And thank you. Right. So it, to me, it's hard. I belong to a group called uh, YPO, Young Presidents yep. Organization. It's been a phenomenal part of my life. Some, some of them, my dearest friends. And the YPO lives by a few rules. One of them is confidentiality. So you'll never hear me talk about what we talk about in our forum, right? But, you know, one of them is don't give advice. And when I first heard that, uh, it took me back to my childhood, which I'll I'll go back there in a minute. But they said, you'll never understand. You'll never have a full picture of somebody, the setting that somebody else lives in. Correct. When you come bring advice, 
you're basically saying what you know about your own life and a little bit what you know about their life is the right answer. And we love to get, humans love to give it because it feels good, right? It feels good to, when you're right and you get it right and they take the path, it feels good, but it's super dangerous. And so that's one of the rules of YPO that I was most attracted to. And it took me back to another parent story real, real quick. So my dad uh, had his best friend, Uncle Eddie. It's one of those, not an uncle, but an uncle, right? It's super close. And I asked my dad once after Eddie had passed on, he said, I said, dad, what was it about your friendship? He said, well, we never gave each other advice. So I'm 20 years old, something like that. And I said, that does not make any sense at all. I thought friends were supposed to give advice. And he said, Maddie, because when you grow up in Boston, you throw a Y after everything. He says, Maddie, you're going to learn. It's actually not what you need. What you need is support and perspective. They may have a better answer for you. But if they tell you straight out, one, you're going to be defensive. Or if you tell them they're going to be defensive. Well, what if they just shared the perspective? What if they said, I don't agree with you. Here's the five reasons why. And you might just look at it and say, oh, I think they're right. And so uh, two things, YPO and my dad saying that about his best friend that we called Uncle Eddie, it was not about advice. And it is so hard to do for me and others because we want to be that person to help others. But we sometimes miss that perspective is the power. It's not advice. It's very important. I've been blessed to be surrounded with um, some really wonderful guys and friends and you know, uh, they are friends. Some of them are business associates, but they're mostly just friends. And I've been blessed because that's exactly their approach. They're really good listeners. They will ask a lot of questions and they will share some perspective, but they've never said, I think you should do this. And you're going to get into this with your kids now that they're getting older. There's a transition as a father between when your job it is to set boundaries and give advice, mm-hmm. right? This is what you will do because you're not old enough to understand to the point where then you ask a lot more questions, share your experiences and let them make their own decisions, stumble or fail or whatever. And when you get past that threshold, a small story, I went to uh, an an investor meeting last night. One of my old investor groups is social in Raleigh last night. I brought my oldest son with me. He's in commercial real estate and there were some clients there that he should be connecting to. And it was hilarious because we have name tags and they saw the same last names and like, what's the, what's the story with you? I said, well, let's bring your kid to work there. My son's 6'3". And, you know, he's 200, 220 pounds, a big kid. Big kid, right? And what was great is hearing the dialogue and, and hearing Vinny go, I'm aware of who that is. This is a relationship I have with them. Here's a couple of questions I have and watching that happen. And we walked back from dinner to his apartment. He lives downtown. And I just pat him on the back and said, what a great night, right? There was no advice. There was no coaching. Oh, it was good. just, what a great night. Right, to have a beer with your kid in that kind of setting and watch him do his thing—it's very small, but what a rewarding evening! What age? What age? I'm seeing glimpses of it in my 13-year-olds, but but help me help me recognize the age or signs. So I think everyone's probably different. My daughter was there much earlier. Yeah, I was very lucky. I grew up with a lot of drama. She's married to her high school sweetheart, and so I missed a lot of the "this boy treated me poorly, daddy," and you know oh. what dad wants to do. Wonderful young man, wonderful couple. We've had five times in, in her life, five times where I've had to say, that is absolutely not going to happen. And we still talk about them. The boys, probably probably more sports settings than anything else, where you've got to let them kind of shift. My youngest had uh, really wanted to make this really important national travel soccer team. And he didn't make it. Hmm. And he was crushed, right? He was crushed. All of his buddies made the team. 
And he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm really bummed, Dad. And I said, Sammy, what do you think you could have done differently to make the team? And he looked at me, he said, train harder. And I said, mm. there you go. And did he say thanks, Yoda? <laughs> yeah. But he just looked at me. My kids always know that I will never, ever bullshit them after a game or after practice. I only demand one thing from them, that you put your best effort on that field. You don't have to score. You, you can make okay. a mistake, whatever. But if I see laziness back to my hot button, yeah, sure. it will draw my ire. And there's a flip side of that, Matt. When they play well and I say to them, you played really well, then it means something. It means something. All right. It really does. You're, as you mentioned, all three of your kids are probably very different like mine are. I don't know if there's a magic number. I'm starting to see it in my 13-year-old. You know, Just to keep echoing, my mom and dad always did this interesting thing after a game. So I was a football, hockey, baseball player. I ran cross yeah. country one year, all that sort of stuff. My dad, regardless of how I played, and there were some great ones and there were some terrible games. And a lot sure. in the middle. He always did the same thing. Always, always, always. And I try to use this for a feedback today. He always said, here's one thing you did great. Yeah. One thing you could have worked on. Or he would ask me that. Yeah. But his feedback was so balanced. And by the way, there were days I was like, yeah, dad, I scored seven goals. And it was seven to nothing. Like, right? and, and I wasn't a goal scorer. So when that happened, he said, yeah, but do you remember that time where, you know, you didn't pat the goalie on the butt after he had a, a tough move? That's what you're calling out, but he wanted me to have that drive and humility, which is always get better, but always put yourself at the door. So, so similar, similar. I love it. I've been moderately successful in business my life, some successes and failures. I've been a good dad. I've been a bad dad. I've been a good husband. I've been a bad husband. But that body of work with my family is the area that I, my wife and I sit back, even after my daughter's wedding and my, my kids, where we look back and go, wow, they're good kids. Right. Yeah. Take everything else I've done in my life. And I love being around my kids. So good. And it's joyful. So the fact that you're as aware as you are of the nuances of each one of your kids, and you talk about taking time, right? Time is your most valuable asset. I have found that we did a family dinner with our kids every night growing up. Practice has got to be tough. You're getting in this age, right? It, yeah, it's it practices till nine o'clock at night. But we always made sure, no matter, even if the last one got home, someone waited and had dinner with them at 10 o'clock at the table. What my wife was really good at picking up is all three of my kids, there'd be one night where one was talkative and the other two weren't. Who's talkative, run, just let them go because they were really funny to hear that, right? If one kid was not talkative two or three days in a row, then we realized there's something going on. And then we dug in and tried to figure out what was going on and get there. My wife's radar, by the way, women's radar is way better than men's. So, you know, when you think back at the growth your family's experienced, the, the success your companies have had, is there a time in your life, and the name of the podcast is Eating Crow, where you said, geez, after some reflection, I got that completely wrong and I've got to make an adjustment. Are there a couple times where you could share with our audience where you've made that pivot and, and rethought your perspective? Oh, there's so many, man. You know, I've, I've had a lot of reflection even out after Prima Water. So Prima Water, publicly traded turnaround, we had an activist investor in and, and I got fired. Sure. And so there's a lot I'm really proud of uh, that we did uh, in the business, but there's a bunch of things that I could have done better. And so that was hard for me because we built up sh so much shareholder value, generally got a lot of support. And then, you know, it didn't go my way at the end. And it was the first time that I got fired. And so sure. for me, that was... That was emotional. I'll just I'll say it like it is. I'm a Boston hockey player. I've 
lost a lot of people, but still that was pretty emotional for me. I love the brand and, and to go through that, I will take a lot of responsibility for it. Not all, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but a lot. Uh, I think some things could have been handled, handled differently, but in general, I look at it and I say, you know, I could have done a lot better. I made some, I forced a few decisions, probably should have listened a, a bit better. And I was, my engines were moving so fast that I could have had a better perspective. So that that's that's a recent one for sure. And um, a lot of reflection after that. A lot. I mean, that was two years ago, something like that. A lot of reflection. I've shut down two companies. So we've had some success. But in the nooks and crannies of that experience, we've shut down companies. The first one was a home grocery delivery company that I didn't start, but I came right out of undergrad and, and joined it for four years. We went public at, you know, we were $30 million company. We went public. We went public way too early, but this is 2000. Yeah. Money was easy. Yeah. And, you know, by I think November of 2001, we were done. And I remember, I remember chaining the doors. And then I remember, because I'm an emotive person, I remember getting in my, my Jeep at the time and I cried all the way home. Yeah. It was such a moment. And I think we collective, I learned a lot of, a lot of things there, like unit economics fuels me today, which is, Force yourself to get really good at gross margins on everything you sell. Yeah. When I hear people say we're losing money on it now, we're just going to make a lot of them, and then we're going to make money. Then some models are like that. A lot of that, what what that means is just no. You're just going to dig a really big hole. Sure. So you know those are those are a couple for me. I mean, I have a ton of personal ones. Peter, as I think about my life um, over the last couple of years, I've reflected a lot. I do realize that the ascension. To the next level, yeah, comes after a bump in a valley, hundred percent, and it's a little scary. I've now sort of mapped my life from when I was a child. My fourth grade read, my teacher saying, "Your son," to my parents, is actually a terrible reader, and it pissed me off. Uh, and I'm not the greatest reader now, but it clicked over. Right, I lost my sure. brother when I was twelve, and that was a terrible time. But it gave me a ton of what I call scale, like skin scale. Sure thick skin. I got cut from my college hockey team, by the way. We didn't even talk about this, right? I was a good high school hockey player, kind of fought my way onto a, onto a college hockey team. I, I probably wasn't good enough to be on that team until the day they cut me. And then I was very driven. And so I transferred and ended up playing against that team and had a good college career. It's a very interesting thing. And I've told my kids this, that the ascension is an odd word because it feels a little too prolific, but the step to the next level for me, it has almost always come after a right hook to the head or something like that. And so now I've come to appreciate those. And yet, as we talk to as dads, you and I, I don't want my kids to go through all that stuff I went through as a kid. I, I don't wish that lesson for the same pain to come through. But um, there's no doubt. I, can, I, I have 15 more of these men where I'm like, wow, I either screwed up or something just bad happened to me. But the growth I had because of that... I'm almost grateful for those moments and which is sort of hard to say when some of those are personal losses. Yeah. And I think most of the people that I talk to that have exhibited what I'll call measurable, visible success, right? People tend to measure others, particularly with social media based on what they can see. They don't see the loss of your brother. They don't see being cut from the hockey team. They don't see all the other challenges that are below that define that. One thing I've recognized in, in a lot of the people as a characteristic, and, and my brother is one of those people who's had a lot of success, is that, man, when they get knocked to their ass, they dust themselves off and get back up. And the biggest challenge that you know, I'll say I personally face and others face is that self-doubt creeps in, right? Like maybe I'm not good enough, or maybe I don't have that extra gear. 
But the ones that get past that, I'm like, screw it. You told me I couldn't read. I'm going to read, right? You told me I couldn't play hockey. I'm going to come back and beat your ass next year. Those are the best ones. You know, my oldest son went to college soccer. He got meningitis the very first day of camp. Oh, wow. As a freshman. My wife literally called me and said, Vinny's on the way to hospital in an ambulance. They were still there. That's no joke either, man. No joke. And he, he made it through it, lost a lot of weight, redshirted that year, which he was going to anyhow. And then a coaching change happened and NC State brought in a new coaching staff and called him and said, we'd like you to come transfer to be goalie at NC State, which is in the ACC. It's the show, yeah. right? And it's 15 minutes from our house. He earns the starting job in the spring, breaks his ankle the day before the first game. They brought in this freshman German you know, national team goalkeeper who's a wonderful, solid human being and a tremendous goalie. He steps in, earns a starting job, ACC freshman of the year. Just, oh. And I look at my kid, you know, he sent me the picture and I knew you may never play another game because especially at goalie, you know, in hockey and lacrosse, any, you're, that guy's it. He rides the pines for the next three years. First guy to hand his kid a water bottle, cheering everybody on, mm. worked his ass off, loves the grind. First game, his fifth year senior redshirt year, this goalie goes out, makes a move, blows out his entire knee. Coach walks up to Vinny and says, you're an ACC goalie. Let's go do it. And he had <laughs> absolutely spectacular senior year. You know, top. I get goosebumps, days. man. Uh, it is, Matt. I'm telling <laughs> you, I did. I got goosebumps. His first game, he starts. He saves a PK. He's ESPN top five, top five plays at, at, oh. at the Wolfpack. Just a great career, and handled it with such humility. He became a leader on the team. You watch it, and you think, man. And he may have not come back and played that senior because he knew he was going to ride the pines. But you know, that, that, those are those are moments where you just double down and grind in. Um, oh, I, I literally have goosebumps. I love because that is. You know those moments when character is either formed or shown, and usually they have it in them, but they need the pressure to, yeah. to come up like that. And there's a lot of companies who say, certainly the high VCs and PE companies, they look for athletes, and that's the reason, right? Oh, and I don't yeah. necessarily look for athletes, but when I do have one in front of me in the interview, the stories of the strife in the heart, and I got cut, or I got hurt, and I came back. You just see in that. So hats off to your son. That is such a great story. And you just know when you hear that, that that person is strong and you want them around you as a friend, as a partner, whatever it is, right? That's such great. Well, hats off. Yeah. And when you play a team sport, you learn how to deal with people in their worst moments and their best moments. And I think that's very, it, it translates to work, right? Yeah, well said. The team atmosphere is good. <laughs> well, by the way, you're eating crow moments. I appreciate that. It's especially at your point in your career, that leadership role at Primo not ending the way you want in it and getting up two years later, looking back, I know it still stings, yeah. but you, the notes you'd been taking all that period of time have led to Excel, which is, I think, got a really bright future. I'm going to ask you one final question that I think as a leader and entrepreneur, a lot of people struggle with, particularly in your role. When you wake up every day, Matt, and you go to work, what are the five things you look at every day to determine where the business is headed? Are there five metrics, three metrics, two metrics? What are the things that are on your dashboard, so to speak? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, one, I have them on my board, <laughs> literally okay. right now. So just, this will be straightforward. But I do think it changes. And I, okay. I just know to entrepreneurs, having done this a few times, I do think you have to be super flexible as it relates to the measures. Sometimes you find those measures early, but sometimes your business model shifts and those measures have to shift too. So that's a constant evolution. Right now, I think of five, it's literally on my board, which is NPS. Mm -hmm. I, meant, I mentioned that before. So super high net promoter score. We're achieving that now. We've got to keep pressure on that. ENPS is another one. So that's the employment net promoter score. 
And so how happy is my team? Because if you think about our purpose of turning homes to havens, create an inspiring place to work, the second part fuels the other one. If my team is engaged and happy, then they're going to feel that optimism, that service at home. So that that's a key one. Unit economics are incredibly important for us. Like I said before, I've learned this in every business, but it's it, it's a bit about you know sort of how valuable those homes are and how we're doing managing them from a cost side. How good is your pipeline? So as we think about you know the folks who have called. And, you know, given how successful your podcast is, I can only imagine some people are going to call us after this, which Billions. is... Millions. <laughs> get ready. You know, we need to make sure that the pipeline is good, not only from the number of people in the pipeline, um, but also the quality of that pipeline, sure. right? Are these people who are unpretentious, you know, good people and, and, and value service in their time? The last one is what I call ops capacity to pipeline. Mm-hmm. So if our pipeline has 20 new members in it, well, that's likely a new home manager because I can't just take 20 because we believe in this high glove service. Sure. I can't take 20 members and put them on top of Trey, right? right? We actually just gave another offer to um, a second home manager uh, yesterday. She's amazing. So excited about her. And she knows homes down, has a great construction background. And it was one of those interviews. I was like, I, I, I would love her to like take care of my house, my personal house. Sure. So that's one. So it's it's really about how good NPS, how good our, our service is, how happy our culture is, uh, unit economics, how good the pipeline is, and then can we handle that pipeline? That gets us, hey, that pipeline's strong, hire a couple more handymen, let's get another landscaper on board, that kind of thing. If we do all those five right, then uh, I think we're in the right direction. That's really helpful, I think, for people listening to starting a new business. First of all, the very first thing you said was, it'll change. Right. It'll evolve. It'll morph. You'll get some things right. You'll get some things wrong. And then you'll stress the model. Right. I'm sure there's pretty elaborate spreadsheets that determine that a home manager can handle 20 homes. That's right. And then what does that impact from revenue growth and gross margin? How, how can you fuel the business from this point? That's right. So, well, Matt, you know, we like Don, we could probably do three episodes. Yeah, so fun. Going. But uh, what I'd like to do, and I have done with a couple of guests, is reach back out in a year and do another one. Find out where the business is. I love it. I love it. Let, let me give you one more thought if I could. I had something sticking yeah, in my head. Yeah, please do. This my, is a parting my, shot. I want to hear it. My grandfather, my dad's dad had a, had a line. And, and you can tell this drive and humility comes deep from in, in me and, and others. Yeah. And I, I remember growing up and my dad said, uh, Grampy taught me this. I'm going to taught you this. And it has the word crow in it. So I've been thinking about you and the conversation. Yeah. He said, crow a little when you're in luck. But pay up, put up, and shut up when you lose. And it is like, you, for my dad, a strong sort of Boston Irish accent. Uh, it is like, it's okay. And I remember like winning a game and going to celebrate a little too much. And my dad being like, a little. Yeah. But the team is watching and they just lost the championship and you won it. So settle down. Give yourself just a little bit of room to crow. Yep. Right. And then uh, but when you lose, man, you take it on the chin, you take it fast and you take responsibility for it. And, and you know, I'm never getting that perfectly right. I just thought of that that I wanted to leave you with because the your, your the whole strategy of your podcast is brilliant about those great times where you don't get it right. Yeah, and I think that just had it nailed. By the way, that's great advice from your dad, where he looks over at you and says, "Just a little," just right? A little. And you'll know when you kind of cross that line. Um, and the fact that he also balanced it with when you take one on the chin, own it, right? Get up yeah. and 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 move along. Great advice from 
from, by the way, from your, your work history, right? Your career, as well as your sports history. Oh, it, oh, it, it keeps echoing, man. It's like an echo chamber. It keeps going on and on. So yeah. some of that great advice just sticks around. That was advice. And that was good advice every once in a while. Well, you know what? That's what I love about the, the guests we have on the show is a lot of times when people look at successful individuals, they think that they've, they've, they've got this magic touch, right? They just mm-hmm. tend to make all the right decisions. And by the way, that's a lot of their public image. But more of their success is driven by their failures and their lessons and their humility For sure. than anything else. So yeah. that's, the, that's the valuable lesson here. And Matt, I, uh, I'm grateful for the time. I'm grateful you're part of the Triangle community as well. Thanks so much. Uh, you Go guys Raleigh. Are great. And you got, a, you got a great podcast, man. So I'll, I'll keep on listening. Well, thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Let's uh, wrap this up. Hope you've all enjoyed this episode of Eating Crow. And uh, we'll get some uh, contact information for Matt in the, uh, in the notes here as well. But uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video. 